This sermon, An Odd Couple, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, March 6, 2022 at Sovereign Grace Church. Let me remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Acts 8.1, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So, There was much joy in that city. Maybe seated. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you fill me freshly with your spirit, that I may preach for your glory. I pray for all the listeners here that you would fill them freshly with your spirit so that every one of us may listen for our good, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been paying attention or spent any time studying Acts, you'll know that one of the things that Luke is famous for is his progress reports. Have you you noticed that? We've already had a number of progress reports, even though we're only seven chapters into Acts. As he tells the story of the church, he repeatedly interrupts the narrative with a quick report of how it's going. And I just want to, I, I, I don't want to take these progress reports for granted, particularly in light of our text this morning. So let's just flip back to chapter 2. I, I, wanna, I want us to see these progress reports. Chapter 2, verse 46, this is the first progress report Luke gives. He says, Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Progress Report 2, chapter 4, verse 32. Look at it with me. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. 
Progress Report number three, chapter five, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the, to the Lord. And then finally, chapter 6, verse 7, notice the progress report And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a cadence in the book of Acts, isn't there? There's a rhythm that Luke wants us to see. The word is being preached. The gospel is advancing. The church is growing. The spirit is at work. Sinners are being saved. These progress reports, they are Luke's way of saying, brothers and sisters, the state of the church is strong. The spirit is at work. The word is being preached. The gospel, it is advancing. And these progress reports, that they give a sense that that what the Lord is doing, it's unstoppable. (laughs) Who can stop this? But then we get to chapter 8. And as you read it, it's as if you can hear the skidding followed by the crashing metal. This is a disturbing report. Look at verse 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And notice... Even as devout men buried Stephen and mourned over his death, verse 3 says, but not Saul. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Luke immediately draws our attention to the young upstart, this zealous up-and-coming Pharisee named Saul. It turns out that Saul wasn't just watching coats during Stephen's murder. He stood there, and as Luke says, he approved of his execution. That, the word Luke uses there for approved, it denotes excitement, <laughs> It communicates an enthusiasm. Saul wasn't merely standing there agreeing. Okay, stoning is brutal, but yeah, I think this is a good thing. No, Luke is communicating that he was jazzed. 
He was into this. Some translations say that he heartily agreed. He heartily approved. This is fist pumping, yes, this is a good thing. Saul approved as he watched this innocent man murdered. And Luke tells us that on that day, that day, just when you see that day in my Bible, it says that day, and I've got two arrows pointing up. I just put two arrows pointing up to Stephen Stoning. On that day, the day that that's not a general term, sometime around, sometime around when this happened, we're not quite sure. No, on that day, the day Stephen was murdered for his faith, on that day, with the enthusiastic approval of a cold-hearted, bloodthirsty Pharisee, here's the report. A great persecution of the church arose. Luke wants us to know that what we learned about last week and what was set into motion by Stephen Stoning, that that would go down in history as an unforgettable day. Listen, for those who are old enough, probably most of us, but not all of us, for those who are old enough, do remember that day when terrorists flew airplanes into the Twin Towers of New York City. I do. I can tell you where I was. I can tell you what I was doing. I can tell you the color of the couch I was sitting on that morning when I should have been going to work. I remember that day. That day is etched into my memory as it is for so many Americans. That day is etched into our history as a country. Well, that day, that day covered by chapter 6, verse 8, through chapter 7, verse 60, Luke wants us to know that day was indelibly pressed onto the mind and history of the early Christians. That day that Stephen was killed and Saul began, notice verse 3, ravaging the church. Luke is, Luke, by the way, Luke is a brilliant writer, isn't he? He knows exactly what he's doing. He chooses words for a reason. And in verse 3, on that day, Luke says, Stephen began ravaging the church. That's a powerful word, ravaging. It reminds us that the Saul wasn't content to merely harass this new movement. He wasn't content to, to, to upset or stir the pot for this small church. No, he, he set out to viciously and utterly destroy them. And notice, notice how he did it, verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged them off, men and emphasis, and women, men and women, and committed them to prison. You know what this sounds like? 
Sounds like ISIS. It sounds like the Taliban and what they're doing right now. Looking for the Christians. Going from house to house. Saul went from house to house looking for those who loved Jesus. He, he was breaking up families. He was breaking up church services. He was dragging both men and women off to prison. Not just, not just to question them, but to imprison them. Husband separated from wife. Child separated from parent. Saul didn't care. He hated Christians. He wanted them destroyed. That day, that day, there arose a great persecution. Okay, we get it. Well, we don't get it. We're so removed from from this, aren't we? We might see it on on our TV screen or read about it on the internet. But Luke wants us to understand this progress report, this, this wasn't good. This was not good. And, and if you continue to read your Bible, Paul, that day, and everything that it set that day set him on, the course that they set him onto, that was etched in his mind and memory. He talked about it often. First Timothy, First Corinthians, Philippians, Galatians. You see, you read about Paul going back. In Acts, we're, and, and Acts, he goes back as he shared his testimony in Jerusalem. In Acts 22, look what he said. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, that is the church, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take, also, to take those also who were there and bring them back in bonds to Jerusalem, to be punished. For what? For their faith. Verse 20, and when the blood of Stephen, Paul even mentions this moment, Stephen's name, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing and watching and approving over the garments of those who killed him. He goes on. When he stands before the authorities, I believe he's in Caesarea, and he says, I myself was convinced that I, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I think he's talking about Stephen here, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury. Listen, he's not harassing the church. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Listen, Paul, Saul gets saved and becomes Paul on the way to Damascus. You know, we, we love to hear about his, how he came to Christ there, but the fact that he was on his way to Damascus to get Christians... Man, you couldn't hide from Saul. You can flee, he will go get you. Because he's going to make sure there isn't a Christian standing. That's what Luke means when he uses the word ravaging. (laughs) And all the ravaging. At the end of verse 1, Luke tells us 
that the Christians were driven. These people were just like you and I. These people were living for Jesus. They were excited about Jesus. They were teaching their kids about Jesus. They were so excited to learn how how everything they used to put their hopes in found in the Old Testament, that really it was all leading up to Jesus. And now they're beginning to understand how it all connects. No more sacrifices. No more trying to earn God's approval. It's about Jesus. No more temple. It's about Jesus. It's not about Moses. It's about Jesus. People enthusiastically gathering together to celebrate and learn more about Jesus. And suddenly, they are scattered from Jerusalem into foreign places like Judea and Samaria. Families broken up, livelihoods ruined, the familiar and cherished gone. Why? Because they loved Jesus. You know, the side application here is to remember, whatever your life is like today, it might not be like that tomorrow. We love to get comfortable. We can be idealists. We think that we know this is the best way that it should be. And we think that God's grace will look the same in our lives and in our homes and in our families and on our churches and in our friendships forever. But God has a way of changing things up on us. So just remember that. If you're clinging to the, to the wonder years of yesterday, if you, if you are longing for things to go back to the way they were one day in the past, don't fail to see the grace of God for today because you're searching for the grace of God yesterday. He is continually at work moving his mission, his kingdom, and his people forward. What does he have for you today that that will change what it looks like? These people, their entire lives were turned upside down. Now, back to the early church. This is a disturbing progress report. I think you get the point. In fact, if you didn't know any better, you would think the story is over. It's not. There's 20 more chapters in the book of Acts. And this disturbing report of that day and the days that followed miraculously lead, here's what we're going to learn, beginning in verse 4, the disturbing report of that day, the persecution and suffering of that day and the days that followed will miraculously lead to the same amazing results of the four previous progress reports. Look at verse 4. Now... Those who were scattered, those who were drug out of their homes, those who who were chased out of the city, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ or the Messiah. Luke 
says a man named Philip. He says the saints scattered. They went about preaching the word. You could actually translate that phrase. They went about gospeling. They went about telling others about Jesus. And he points out Philip, like he pointed out Stephen earlier. According to chapter 6, verse 5, like Philip, Stephen was one of those original deacons. He fled to Samaria, and no doubt, like the others who fled, probably didn't flee with much. Luke doesn't tell us. Did he have family with him? What personal possessions was he able to gather up and take? Did he just have the clothes on his back? We don't know. Luke's not concerned with those details. But we know one thing Philip took with him. The gospel. He took Jesus with him. He took this saving message that makes sense out of the Old Testament and history. He took the gospel. Philip and the others scattered by the persecution took Jesus with them. Wherever they fled, they preached the gospel. Notice that in verse 4, Luke doesn't say just Philip went because he's a deacon after all. No, he says in verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word at their new job. They went about preaching the word in their new neighborhood. They went about preaching the word wherever they went. They went with one thing, the message that Jesus saves sinners mercifully and graciously. They claimed Christ. Now, Philip went to Samaria. Now, if I could just say that, that, that took courage. That took care, courage. Samaria was not a friendly place. I, I, I read about a young lady who fled the Taliban in Afghanistan to Ukraine just a few months ago. She thought that was a friendly place. Now she's fleeing Ukraine. I would tell you that that Philip going to Samaria, he wasn't fleeing to a place that would be friendly. Most of you probably know, but there was a long-standing hostility between Jews and Samaritans. A a quick lesson on the Samaritans. Do your own study. But Samaritans were ethnic and religious. Pardon the expression that they were were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. You can go to John 4 when Jesus encounters the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And you can learn the nature of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Particularly... By the words of the Samaritan woman, when when Jesus asked her for a drink of water and she says, what? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That says it all. Now, Samaritans did believe in God, but just the God of the first five books of the Bible, just the Torah, They had their own temple. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim. They were waiting for a Messiah based on the words of Moses. 
in the Pentateuch. After me will come another prophet. Listen to him. They were waiting for that man. If you remember, again, in Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman told Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming. Do you remember what Jesus said back to her? I who speak to you am he. The Samaritans were waiting. And now, just a few years after Jesus' encounter with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, here comes Philip into Samaria, driven from his homeland, preaching the Messiah, preaching the Christ. Look at verse, look at verse six. He's preaching. He's preaching. These people, they were apparently hungry. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. They listened intently. What was being said? He, he was telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the one promised, yes, even by Moses. They were paying attention to what was being said by Philip, and when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Philip, listen, Philip is preaching Christ. He is preaching the gospel. Just, Just... If you can, use your sanctified imagination. By the way, when you read your Bible, read, capital R-A-E-E-R-E-A-D, read your Bible with your sanctified imagination. In other words, read it with the understanding and awareness that Christ is at the center of this, and this was real for them. Imagine this scene Philip is preaching that the Messiah has come, Jesus of Nazareth. Signs and wonders are being done. Demons are being cast out and people are healed. But most of all, the gospel's being preached and people are listening. I believe that people were saved here for two reasons. One, verse 8, we see the fruit is joy, and joy is the most pronounced fruit of the gospel. And second, in the very next story, there is a juxtaposition of one who really wasn't saved. And so people are being saved. People were embracing the gospel. They were believing in Jesus Saul's still ravaging the church. But there was revival. Oh, not in the holy city, but in this Samaritan city, people are being transformed physically and spiritually. Imagine being there. Listen, the Samaritans were a people of hopeless superstition and useless half-truths. And yet, Luke's progress report says it all in verse 8. Verse 4, he says, the 
gospel's being preached in Samaria. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. What a progress report. (laughs) Stephen's sermon was the catalyst for the ravaging of the church that led to the gospel joy in Samaria. It's an odd couple. The persecution of so many believers, the suffering of so many who loved Jesus led to the joy, the true joy, the eternal joy of those who as a result were hearing about Jesus Christ, perhaps for the very first time. Shouldn't surprise us because do you remember what Jesus promised in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, get this, and in all Judea and Samaria. It's happening. It's happening. The promise Jesus gave just before he ascends to the right hand of the Father is beginning to unfold. Oh, not like we would have written it. I wouldn't have written this script. No one, I'm sure, was sitting around whatever first century Starbucks might have looked like, saying, I got a plan to put Jesus' promise into motion. How about we do this? We find somebody who's willing to preach a really offensive message. No doubt, the religious leaders will take care of that. And that'll scatter us. And we take Jesus wherever we go. What do you think? I know it's risky. I know the casualties may be high. No. Here's the point this morning. If you write anything down, write this down. God ordains and uses the persecution and suffering of his people. And here's what I want us to understand. That's you and I. To bring the eternal blessing and joy of salvation to others. It's an odd couple for sure. Persecution and joy. But you know what? It's God's infinite wisdom to build his eternal kingdom. I was going to read your story, but I think I forgot to print it. (laughs) So I'm going to paraphrase it. I think it was 1965. pastor was drug out of his church and arrested. I'm not sure what country this was in. It was in, it was in Belgium, actually. Oh, no, it was in Bulgaria. He's drug out of his church for one reason. He was not the pastor the state had put in place to pastor the people. He was preaching the gospel. He was preaching Christ. And for that, he spent eight months in prison. 
And he tells the story of how, while in prison, he talked to everybody he could about Jesus. Jailers, other prisoners. If you had near, you heard about Jesus. He said, people got saved. And you know what this unjustly condemned man said? Apparently, God decided we would bear more fruit preaching Christ in prison than in the church. That sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians. Church, we need to understand this. Though we worship quite comfortably in our Western bubble, there is a storm gathering. Remember when we preached to the book of James a year, year and a half ago? There is a gathering storm. And that's not being an alarmist. That's being a realist. There's a gathering storm. Society is not getting friendlier to the gospel. It's increasingly getting hostile toward the gospel. And here's the question we each need to ask ourselves and ask one another. Are we ready? Are we ready to, are we prepared to proclaim Christ and suffer for the sake of doing it? Are we ready? It's such an important question because Tim and I were talking this morning. Tim made the, yeah, you know, when it comes to being persecuted for your faith, it's not like, okay, when that comes, here's a good book. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready. Scripture calls us to be ready. Luke 21, verse 12. But before all, this is Jesus, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up in the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to, to what? To boycott corporate America? To write a letter to your congressman or congresswoman? To move to Idaho or buy 400 acres and just get out of society? That's not what Jesus says. He says, when persecution comes, this will be your opportunity to what? Say it with me. Bear witness. Stand in the face of the storm and gospeling, and go gospeling. Proclaim the Messiah. Are we ready when the opportunity arrives? I don't know if I am. Two principles for our readiness as we close. But I just want, I want to make one caution before we go here. I, I shared with Tim that I think my concern this morning when we talk about suffering, it, I think our temptation is to leapfrog over suffering for our faith because that can seem far off in our personal experiences. 
living in the United States of America. Thank God. But to not see that as the primary application of a text like this, but to immediately lead to our personal suffering. It's what the prophetic words spoke to this morning. Whether it's your health or relationship, whatever it is, you, you know you're suffering. And that is certainly an application this morning. But it's not the direct application. The direct application is suffering that comes from being persecuted because we love Jesus. So I want us to stay there. The Lord knows where you're at right now. And and, and the Spirit of God may give you application this week. And that's good. Because that's the Spirit of God at work. He, he, will, he will soothe your soul. The, the, these two application points, are, they matter to whatever kind of, uh, whatever the source is of your suffering, whatever kind of suffering it is, this text speaks to it. But the primary point this morning is that Are we as individual believers and collectively as a church, are we preparing ourselves to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Two things. There's more, but you guys only give me so many minutes. (laughs) Number one, remember, God alone is God. God alone is God. Whether it is persecution of this church, and it it will happen, or personal persecution for your faith, in your suffering, never forget that God is God alone. His plan to bring his eternal kingdom to bear can never be thwarted because he is always in control. He is a sovereign God. That means that he is in control of all things. And his sovereignty is worked out in his providence. That is, that he controls all things, even to the smallest little details, as he brings his plans to fulfillment. That never changes. God alone is God. And we can look through the corridor of history and see that that people and groups have tried to be God, have tried to silence God. The Sanhedrin and Saul in Acts, they thought they could destroy the church of Jesus Christ. They thought that they could silence the gospel preaching By making Stephen his example, they failed. Verse 4 and on. They failed. The scattered church took the gospel with them and they wouldn't shut up. Since then, others have tried and are still trying. The, 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 The Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation. The Communist Party built... On this premise, there is no God. The Islamic terrorists who want to force the world to bow to their God. 
the liberal Americans. They have tried. They have always failed. They will always fail because they are not God. Aren't you grateful for that reality? When you turn on the news, aren't you grateful that God is God? When you look at this administration in the White House, aren't you glad that God is God? When you look at Putin and an aggressive army, aren't you glad that God is God? Remember, listen, Jesus promised the persecution. And it may come and go. It may show itself in different ways. But there is one thing that is unchanging. God is God. God is God. So so when you suffer on account of your faith, be it in the classroom, the workplace, the neighborhood, or your family, Remember, God alone is God. History is his divine script to establish his eternal kingdom. And in that glorious mission, he is unstoppable because he alone is God. Second, remember God is God Remember, Jesus is our joy. Verse 4 reminds us Philip wasn't the only one fleeing Jerusalem. Many, many Christians scattered because of the persecution. And when they did, they left people they loved and possessions they needed behind. But instead of spreading misery... They spread true, true eternal gospel, gospel joy. Why? How? I mean, after all, why not just stay in Jerusalem? That's your home. Just find a more discreet way to worship. Lay low. Get under the radar. You got a lot. At stake here. You're rooted. You've invested a lot in your career. Just find a way to lay low. T- tone the preaching down. Tone the evangelism down. You always feel like you got to speak up to cultural issues around the water tank? Don't, don't, don't be so truthful when it comes to the water tank and cultural issues. Soften it a little bit. Come on. Could, could you imagine? Philip? Hey, guys, this is getting real. I love Stephen. Lord be with him. He represented us well. We need to rethink them.
How did they do it? Jesus was their joy. Jesus was their all in all. And here's the question I want us to ponder this week. Is he mine? Is he mine? Is he increasingly mine? Can I increasingly say, not just with my lips, but with my life, once I was lost, but now I see. My sins are forgiven. I am made holy before a holy God. I am filled with the spirit that empowers me to live for the glory of God according to his word. And I am promised that God will never leave me nor forsake me. I am promised that that when this short life here is over, that there is an eternal weight of glory waiting for me where my life will never end before the throne of God above in the presence of my Savior, worshiping him with the angels. And it's all because of Jesus. That's why Jesus is more precious to me than my job. That's why Jesus is more precious than my hobbies. That's why Jesus is more precious to me than my spouse. It's why Jesus is more precious to me than my kids. It's why Jesus is more precious to me than my house. It's why Jesus is more precious to me than my reputation. It's why Jesus is more precious to me than the praises of my neighbor and the approval of my coworkers. It's why Jesus is more precious than my personal comfort and convenience. It's my joy is Jesus. I think this is the work that God wants to do in us to prepare us to remember, wherever I see, hear, feel, experience, God alone is God. And I, I don't have to live in misery because of my earthly circumstance, because my joy is Jesus. And like God being God, Jesus and what he's done for me and who I am in him never changes. Listen, persecution is not the church's greatest enemy. (laughs) Prosperity and convenience are. Our prosperity, our personal convenience And this is probably another sermon for another day, but God uses persecution to serve his gospel mission. We see that right here. And that includes purging the church, us, of anything that hinders that mission. That mission where God is primarily and most concerned not with our convenience, but with his glory. So he will do what indeed he needs to do in each one of us to make Jesus our high and greatest joy. And I believe that this this is how the world, this is how the world will know we have found 
glorious and eternal treasure in Christ alone. When they see us suffer for his sake, with true joy, and as the apostle said to the Philippians, a great sense of privilege.